Hello there, Alaskans, wherever you are. Welcome to the Must Read Alaska Show, coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. This is the place where we talk about, you guessed it, Alaska, where we keep the mainstream media on their toes and where we are standing up for what's right and a world run by leftists. You can find out more by heading over to mustreadalaska.com and also checking out the Must Read Alaska YouTube channel for some really great content. But first, let's get this party started. Thank you, Scott. Hello, everybody, and welcome aboard Must Read Alaska, coming to you from somewhere in Alaska. We are the place for conservative news and content where we're standing up for a strong America and a strong Alaska, and we're always in your corner fighting for your rights as an American. You can also find Must Read Alaska on our website at mustreadalaska.com, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, MeWe, Parlor, all the whole list. I'm Suzanne Downing, and you can write, read my column, Must Read America, at our news partner over at Newsmax, where I write every couple of weeks, and you can check me out there. And also, at the top of our page today, um, mustreadalaska.com, there is a breaking story about all of the many people who are joining the Bronson administration for, uh, as he becomes the mayor of Anchorage. And there are a lot of names there, including Amy Dabosky, who's coming aboard as city manager of Anchorage. Here's the gal who was the assembly member for Chugach Eagle River. She went and worked in the, um, the administration of Dunleavy as the well, most recently as deputy commissioner for commerce. And now she's going to be the city manager for the municipality of Anchorage. And there's a bunch of other names that are, were announced today, including Craig Campbell, who's our former lieutenant governor. He's the chief of staff. And uh, Nikki Chewbacca, who's coming on as uh, human resources manager for the new mayor as he, as he joins um, the city on July 1. Anyway, thanks for tuning in, everybody. And he hello to my co-host, John Quick. Uh, what's going on in Akiski, John? Hello, Suzanne. John Quick here coming to you live on location from Nikiski, Alaska, the wonderful unincorporated place that we I like to call home. Not much going on in Nikiski except for it has been marvelous and sunny the last couple of days. And uh, we love it out here, sunny and warm out here in Nikiski and kids are out playing in the sun, having a good old time. And, and uh, you know, I've just been sitting back and watching what the uh, House Senate and uh, uh, the House Legislature is doing, and it's an interesting thing to watch. And I know that we have a guest here today that I know you're pretty excited to talk about. Um, so, who do we have today for our special guest? Very happy that you mentioned that. We we have with us Representative Ben Carpenter from Nikiski, and welcome to the show, Representative Carpenter. Thank you, Suzanne. Good to be here. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's uh, been an exciting day in the legislature, and. Uh, emotionally charged and uh, still maybe a little bit raw in some cases, but it's, uh, it's a good day and we've, we've uh, done our, our business down here. Well, you know, for those of you who don't know, Representative Carpenter, Carpenter was raised in Nikiski and he served in Iraq, Afghanistan, Turkey, Kuwait. Um, he was with the Air Force and prior to his election, he was uh, with the Alaska National Guard. Um, he was a special staff officer in the commanding general's office, and now he is the House Representative for District 29, and he's also grows uh, peonies in Nikiski, and I'm sure you probably have some other things going on as well. You have a, a beautiful family, and you have a really great life, and I'm, I've always been a big fan ever since I met you. That one time we had, first time I met you, I think we were having dinner at Sweet 100, and I got a chance to, to meet you, and you said you were going to run, and I thought, you know, this will work. This person will do a great job for Nikiski, so... Thank you for running and thank you for serving all the service that you've had 
has been so um, so worthy of it's just been so worthy of a patriot. So it, you had a big complicated day today, and what I was hoping is that you would help us sort through what happened because I know that over the weekend the mainstream media was reporting that there's a deal, there's a deal, the the government's not going to shut down. So. Um, the House minority and the House majority made a deal and it's coming together. And then Monday morning, it just didn't look like it was coming together. And then it was completely falling apart. And then uh, we had House Speaker Louise Stute saying, well, it appears that I've had a big misunderstanding with the House minority leader. So we're going to take a, a little at ease, which in at Mustard, Alaska, we call it a little Louise. And because uh, that's about all she does, she takes lots of at eases. And we're going to go sort this out, and they did. But I, I know that you can explain to us the ins and outs of what happened. And so, what happened today? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I get. I guess we we must start from the beginning to say that um, the budget that that normally gets passed, uh, any and any bill that gets passed, ha- becomes effective either on the effective date of the bill or ninety days after signed and that's constitutionally um our constitution is set up so that a a bill takes place 90 days after and i I believe from the founding father's perspective they wanted to give people um an opportunity or a time to be prepared for a new change or a a new bill and so that's why the 90-day period so the budget was passed and the effective date clause that would have made it effective uh july 1st um didn't pass the the house minority members didn't agree to the um, effective date clause. And, and it requires a two thirds vote of the legislature or of, of each um, body to pass that effective date clause. And we didn't agree. There were things about the budget that we were not happy about and things about the, the way that uh, we're not addressing long-term stability that we weren't happy about. And so um, we didn't give that two that two thirds vote. Well, what happened today was the resolution of um, that two thirds vote and and in allowing the the, uh, budget to pass and be effective uh, July 1st. So the reason that the founding fathers and mothers, because there were a a few women in that constitutional convention for Alaska, wanted that 90 days effective, you know, a bill doesn't go into effect for 90 days, is there were real reasons. They they deliberated it, they talked about it, there's quite a constitutional record. They basically said, you know, the, the government itself needs time to prepare for something to go into effect. It can't go into effect right away. And so 90 days is a reasonable amount of time for the government to prepare for something. And um, if you, so if you want to change the effective date on a bill, you have to have two thirds of the legislature has to be in agreement. And the minority of the house wasn't in agreement for a couple of reasons, I believe. One was because the permanent fund dividend was $525 or then they, they put this big knife in your back and said, if you don't vote for, you know, for the, using the CBR to pay for the constitutional budget reserve to pay for the permanent, more permanent fund, you know, $1,100 permanent fund, then we're going to wreck all of these um, capital projects in the Matsu Valley and some other places too. I mean, they basically came in really heavy handed from conference committee and your minority said, you know what, we're not playing, you know, we're not playing with this. Part of part of the challenge that I have with the results of today and why why I said that it's still a little raw is our um, the majority of our minority members wanted to see a change to those three amendments that came out of the conference committee. 
the first one dealt with the PFD. The second one dealt with uh, school bond debt reimbursement and uh, oil tax credits uh, repayment. And the third one dealt with all of the um, capital spending that you just spoke about that was tied, that were basically projects in the MATSU that were tied to the three quarter vote. So you don't give the vote, you don't get those uh, capital projects. And that type of um, arm twisting, if you will, for, just to put a very positive, most positive um, label that, that I can. As nice as you can say it. I said a knife in the back, but anyway. Yeah, so that, that's how we were addressed in the, fir the uh, first two sessions of my career here, um, last, last legislature. And we yeah. came into this saying, hey, we don't wanna see this happen. And we had a commitment that that was not going to happen. And then coming out of conference committee, that's exactly what happened. And so while there were, there were a bunch of us that were willing to give the two thirds vote, as soon as that happened, we, we were not willing. It, it is, it is um, not appropriate to uh, coerce people to, to vote something by, by that type of behavior. And, and that's, that's where we found our, why we found ourselves in this, in this place. So kind of the, the, um, the disappointing piece of this is that, that um, we got a, a non-binding sense of the house uh, agreement that the majority is going to work with us in the future, uh, most likely in August, if that holds true, to address those amendments. And that's all we've got. I, I don't, I'm not sure that that's actually going to happen. The, the trust oh, is a commodity. Man. Trust, trust is a commodity that is in short supply. And, and you, yeah. you could see it on their faces. You could see how happy Chris Tuck was and how happy the majority was when that sense of the house passed. And you could see the rest of the minority just going, we just got and, screwed. And I'll be perfectly honest with you guys. The, the minority, we didn't see this as a, an issue with the PFD. It was not about the amount of the PFD. That is important. But what's more important is, is solving that problem, that perennial problem of the PFD yeah. and, and, not, and, and getting away from this arbitrary nature that, that takes up so much time. And here we are, we're, we're most of five months in to the le this legislature, first session of this legislature, and all we've got is a budget to show for it. We don't have any of the long-term solutions that the business community has been asking for, um, a stable uh, tax structure, a stable spending structure, um, and following the law on the, on the permanent fund dividend, getting that out of the, pro out of the way of the, uh, um, you know, being out of the way of the th bigger things that we need to talk about. And we don't have that. Again, we don't have that. And I have been saying to our minority members for this whole this whole legislature, uh, this whole session and special sessions, how do you overcome the inertia to do nothing about um, long-term fiscal solutions? How do you overcome the resistance to do nothing? And, and I, I don't know the answer to that because here we are, you, you're facing a government shutdown, you're five months into a legislative session and we haven't done anything about the long-term anyway, we've got some, yeah. some uh, promises on paper that we're going to address it. So, um, I, the best I can do is be cautiously optimistic at this point. So John, you were trying to say something. Yeah, it seems, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I would hope that they come back to the table, but, you know, to bribe somebody to enable you to want to trust them, I'm not really going to trust their word on that. And I don't think anything is going to happen of coming back in August. Um, 
and it, it is what it is, unfortunately. So, uh, Representative Carpenter, what hap What, in your opinion, what happened to the minority? It seemed like they completely caved again to the liberal majority once again. Was it simply the carrot of we'll talk about this later, or was there other things behind the scenes that we don't know about that the public doesn't know about that, you know, in your opinion, what happened? So a lot of what has uh, gone on here that's uh, inside baseball that people really don't uh, care about and, and is frankly irrelevant. But one of the things that I think is really important, and it goes to this question of how do you overcome the inertia to do nothing? business community has been asking for a solution to this unpredictability, the nature of our, our state government uh, funding and financing. They've been asking for a, a solution to this for decades. And we, our, some of our members received, um, shall we say, guidance from the business community that said, we do not want you to allow the government to shut down. We think that we are recovering from the uh, pandemic, uh, the res government response to pandemic, uh, businesses being shut down, and the likelihood that a government shutdown will hurt our business, it, it is just um, too much. And so that is, the, that is the impetus, that is the, the thing that I can point to that caused members of the minority to believe that they do not have support back home for standing, um, standing strong, and, and allowing a government shutdown to be that, that uh, significant emotional event that creates the inertia, inertia to do something about our long-term problems. And yeah. that, is, that is what I think is, is most at, at stake here. Now, I've had conversations with, with some business folks and I can't de deny that a government shutdown eventually will have some impact in our, in our economy. But what is the opportunity cost over the last decade of not addressing those problems to the business community? We hear time and again that investing in Alaska is a risky proposition. Where, where would we be now if we had have addressed the problems back when we had $16 billion in the savings account? Where will we be in the future if we address the long-term problems and business, the business community outside the, outside the state says, you know what? Alaska is a good bet. They pay their bills on time. They have a, a stable uh, fiscal structure and, and we can commit to doing business in Alaska. Where would our economy be? What is the opportunity cost for continuing to do nothing? And that's the question that the business community ought to be asking themselves when faced with a decision to shut down the government, um, a temporary, momentarily painful um, process that will, you know, in the, in the larger scheme of history will just be a speed bump. But it was, it was an opportunity to cause people to come to the table and honestly address the problems that we have. Now we're going to push that conversation off to August without that, that level of uh, significant emotional event to, to have to deal with. So I, I don't, I, 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 all I can say is that I'm, I remain optimistic that we can address our problems. Um, Let's talk I, a little I'm bit about the... Let's talk a little bit about the, the, the promises that the liberal majority made, which is, like you pointed out, year after year after year, all we do is now, since, ever since the Walker era, all we do is debate the amount of the, of the permanent fund dividend. And this year, the choice was apparently going to be $525 or $1,100. 
because that's kind of what came out of conference committee. And it's now 525, which I think is probably, it's just fine. I mean, it's, it's why not? I mean, 1100, um, it's, it's still a problem. So, because it's not, it's not, um, it's, it's not the statutory formula. You haven't, you guys haven't been able to address that. You know, there's, there's just, like you say, there's no will to actually address the real problem, which is fixing the statute. And all of this ensued because of uh, Senate Bill 26 and how they created the percent of market uh, value draw out of the permanent fund um, earnings reserve to start paying for government services, but they never addressed the, uh, the rest of it, which is, are you going to continue with the same structure for the dividend? And some say yes, some say no. But today there was uh, this big, long sense of the house and it was read out loud by the clerk. And I must say, I have never heard such a long sense of the house ever. It was complicated. And it said, we, we vow to work with a minority and come up with a stable fiscal plan for the future. And we'll do that in August. But there's nothing that really holds them to that. Now, you heard the rules chair before it was read, um, specifically state that the agreement, that the, the sense of the house is a non-binding arrangement. It's not worth and the so paper it's printed on. It's and only worth as much as the members of the body are committed to adhering to it. Mm -hmm. So that that could work. It could work if I if I have a positive attitude and say, hey, you know what? Um, I have no reason to doubt that these folks are going to um, stand by their commitment. I I can I can use history and say, look, we've got statutes on the books that you know these are laws, and these mm -hmm. folks don't follow those laws, and they don't want to even change the law. So, and, and I, that's maybe too harsh. Maybe they do want to, but there's no will to do it. Like the, what it takes to overcome the, the opposition to making those changes. So you've got two statutes on the books that define how you um, determine what the income from the permanent fund is. One of them mm -hmm. is what we would call the statutory formula, 21% of er, um, earnings over five years, mm -hmm. over the past five years. And then you've got the POMV, which is 2% of the total fund value. And, and those are just two ways to decide what your income is going to be from the, from the fund. And then you've got another section of law that says, and this is the law that says, whatever you decide, 50% of it goes to the dividend fund to be paid mm -hmm. out in permanent fund dividends. And the other 50 stays in the ERA. And you're supposed to inflation proof with it. So if we're not going to follow that law, then we need to change it because we need to be a nation of laws. Right. So we've got laws that we don't follow. And now we've got a sense of the house that we're supposedly trust the majority that that's what we're going to follow. There's also something that really weird happened with that sense of the house. It, uh, I understood that when you guys convened that the agreement was the sense of the house would come first and then there would be a vote on the budget so that the government wouldn't shut down on uh, July 1. But then when you got in there, there was this big swaparoo and uh, Louise Stutes, the speaker, tried to do the sense of the house, said, we'll do the sense of the house later. She wanted to get the vote first. And that seemed to me a, an act that really destroyed what fragile trust there was. Because once they have the vote on, on the budget itself, they don't need to actually move forward on the sense of the house because the vote on the budget was what they were really looking for. And my understanding is that that maneuver was 
and, and that's specifically a maneuver because I know that we were having conversations that this is what's required. Not, not only did we not get um, the first, those three amendments addressed before we have the, the two thirds vote, mm -hmm. but we had an agreement that we were gonna have the sense of the house before we had that vote. And mm -hmm. the maneuver was her, her members don't trust. They don't trust that we're actually gonna give the two thirds vote. So we're, they're gonna hold out and give the, the uh, sense of the house after we give our vote. We're the minority. Mm -hmm. We have the least amount of power of all the members there. And they're telling us that they don't trust us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, I hold no power other than this vote. Mm -hmm. And I can't even get you to, to agree to some of the things that I want to see happen. Yeah. It's, so, it's, it's not, so there was no, there was never a compromise. That's the thing. It's just, it's just a disgusting um, bastardization of what it should be. And so what we saw is once again, the, the House Republicans are the ones who did the compromise. They're the ones who actually have compromised and the, the House Democrats and the few that have joined in with them, um, they haven't compromised at all, as far as I can tell. So now, now everybody's got a $525 PFD hung around their necks as a vote, except for there's about seven who, in the House who did not, yourself, Kirka, Eastman, um, not sure who else, but there's 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 a few who didn't give that vote, and um, but there is a five hundred dollar five hundred twenty five dollar PFD, which in if if you look back in the 19, early nineteen eighties when we started getting our permanent fund dividends, that would be worth about a hundred ninety seven dollars is what we figured out. Um, so it's the smallest actual PFD in history in terms of spending value, and I don't think that anybody's happy with that. I know you're not, but you're not happy with it because it's um, once again, breaking the law. Yeah. And I guess I'm happy for uh, hap unhappy with it for different reasons. Right. Um, I, I understand through the scuttlebutt around that none of the caucuses are happy with a $500 PFD. So they have arbitrarily picked another number that they are happy with, the majorities. They want to see an $1,100 PFD. Okay, that makes their members happy. Okay, right. well, if that's all that it takes is for us to be happy one legislature to another, then why do we need laws? Why don't we just have the legislature meet and decide things every year? Like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be better to have the legislators saying, you know what? the reason we need to have a certain dollar figure PFD is because that's what the law says we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. That's not the conversation that's, that's happening. And, and it's a difficult conversation to say, Hey, the law says one thing we want to do another. So let's change the law. The flat out truth is they don't have the support to change the law, but they'll go mm -hmm. ahead and get the result that they want anyway. Mm. So what's the, what is the role that the governor has to play in all of this? Because this budget now goes to his desk. And he can um, he can veto parts of it. He can you know he can I suppose he can veto the entire PFD right there. Or he could say you know what five hundred twenty five dollar PFD is just not something I'm going to sign my name to. I'm not going to make myself uh, vulnerable to run next year on that. So I'm just going to maybe he vetoes it. What do you think? Yeah, I have no idea what the governor is going to do. What you've spoken is true. That's the decision that he's going to have to make as to whether he vetoes it and forces us to to come back and uh, reappropriate another PFD or, or just have no PFD. I mean, in essence, if he vetoes it, that's what could happen is we just yeah. don't have a PFD this year. 
and then it'll be on I, him and he's running for he's going to theoretically he'll be running for governor next year and he'll be the one who who gave us no pfd yeah if he does that yeah and and the legislature right now is owns the 525 dollar pfd so if, oh, if their majority is in the car but if he signs it then he owns it too that's correct yeah. and and so the, the people can then point the finger at their entire government and say, what the heck? None of you are following the law. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's a complete outlaw situation because we have laws on the books that the legislature just simply is sort of like the retroactive per diem thing too. Well, you know, there's a law on the books that says you can't have per diem unless of course you pass the budget. So then legislative council goes and huddles and says, okay, we passed the budget. So now, um, Everybody gets their per diem in, uh, retroactively, which is probably not what the intent was, but it's what the legislative lawyer says is acceptable because she found a loophole. And it's just time after time, we, we find uh, our legislators, uh, not all of them, and I, I hate to use a broad stroke on all of our legislature because there are some that are just not in that category and they shouldn't be painted with that brush. Yeah, I think there's just a there's a there's a point there's a tipping point, right? If there's enough influential people that are saying, yeah, we need to change this law, then then that kind of builds momentum and it happens. You just don't have the people in the positions of power that care to do that, and so the momentum never you never pick that momentum up. It, it just how I, I don't I don't know like the problem that exists is not figuring out what the right dollar figure is or what the right law is. The problem is how do you overcome that uh, unwillingness to change? It's, it's human nature. We've got this ingrained in us that we like comfort and we like to keep things the same and we don't want to change. It's scary. It's spooky and we don't want to change. And so how do you overcome that? How, how do you cause people to have a bigger picture, a longer term focus and say, you know what, if we continue to do this, it's going to, we're going to have feel pain into the future and we need to not do that. Or we're feeling pain that we don't, we're not even thinking about. Like our economy could be growing right now instead of not growing. If we would just show um, the business community that, that we can follow the law and, and make good fiscal decisions. And it's not just about government spending. I mean, the, how do you overcome that? It, that's the so question that needs to be asked. So the business community should probably not be all that happy with $525 PFD because that is not going to circulate that much money through our economy. I don't know what the total amount is. I think I did the calculations. It was, it was shockingly small. Um, and then really in terms of your, your own constituents, what, I mean, you were back in your district. What are you hearing from them? Well, I've only been back to my district a couple of times and I have not held any meetings. I have met with my family a couple of times. Mm -hmm. um, the emails that I receive and the phone calls that I receive have been supportive of standing my ground and um, getting the legislature to a point where they want to change and follow the law. And, and it's not just the, the law for the PFD. Several years ago, we didn't even, we, um, Walker administration didn't pay into the permanent fund, the 25% royalties that they should have. Mm-hmm. Like that's another another law that, that the executive branch just said, hey, yeah, we're not going to do that. And then we got support from the legislature and we didn't do it. And it was all because we thought we didn't have enough money. So right. uh, anyway. Yeah. 
we're breaking the law and, and you know every which way but loose well our, our, now, now just to close out here the legislature has finished its business is there anything left for you to do down there in Juneau, or are you free to finally go home until they call you back or so is there, I am going, do you have to stick around? Nope, I'm going home until um, August or until we call ourselves back into session. Okay. And the, the thing that has to be done is we have to deal with the three quarter vote. There's still things that are unfunded. It's a partially unfunded budget right now. You've got programs out of the, uh, that are using the DGF funds that as of July 1st, all of those accounts will be swept into the, into the CBR. And so those mm -hmm. programs, some of them, most of them will not be funded. Now, if they're not funded, they, they just keep, they keep going um, until the money runs out or what, what happens? The, there will be no money. So be, yeah. the balances that exist on July 1st, or actually it's the close of business on, on June 30th, will be swept into the CBR. So the fund might be empty until the following day where revenue comes in. So if it's revenue that comes from fees, for example, mm -hmm. you know, park fees or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So those fees come in and then it goes into that account, but it's, it's starting from zero because that, that balance had been swept into the CBR. Got so it. I don't know when the, I don't know when the payout is for that program. And I don't know what the fees are coming into it for the next 30, 60, 90 days, 180 days, whatever, um, before that payment has to be made for that program. So um, the, the reality is the 190, roughly $190 million that is funded through the DGF programs that are, that are from sweepable DGF funds are, are not going to be funded on July 1st. And so we'll have to have a conversation in August about how, how to fund those. I'm, I'm a big proponent of keeping the $1.5 billion or, or thereabouts that mm -hmm. got um, swept from the DGF funds, keeping it in the CBR as our only savings. Right now, if you if you trust the majority's argument that that we can't overdraw the ERA and the DGF funds are 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 designated funds and can't be spent, then we're effectively out of savings. Right. We've got four hundred million dollars in the in the CBR and nothing in our statutory um, reserve, so right. we're effectively out of savings. That's a very bad position for the state to be in. Right. That, yeah. That that that's true. Well really good point. I am so glad you were able to come on the show today. And, and for anybody who had a spinning on ERA and DGF, I get that. Uh, it gets really confusing. But the, the way that that uh, state budget is made up of, it's made up of undesignated funds, designated funds. You've got the earnings reserve account. You've got the constitutional budget reserve. We've already stripped out the statutory budget reserve a long time ago. We stripped out all that money and that, that money's gone. But um, Representative Carpenter, I really appreciate you coming on our show. I appreciate your service to our state. I look forward to seeing you sometime in the Kenai this summer. Hopefully I'll come down when you have a, a, a town hall meeting and I'll be able to cover it for Must Read Alaska. Thank you so much and safe travels. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Everybody, before we go, um, you know, the rest of the week, please feel free to sign up at the Must Read Alaska newsletter. It goes out three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And just drop your email address in the box right there at mustreadalaska.com on the right-hand side. And John, do you have any other, I mean, would you have any other remarks to, to fill in here before we go? Yeah, the only thing I would, I would uh, chime in is that I hope that the minority um, gets a little more aggressive with their marketing effort because the, 
the, the Democrats are very well organized. They, ah. at the flick of a switch, they can have all their people in tune with their messaging and everything that they want. And okay, we're, we're going to be fine with $1,100 permitted fund and everybody's going to be on board with that and everybody's all happy. Well, the minority is not great at that. You know, mm. they're great at sticking, th this minority in particular is amazing at sticking to their ground and doing what they said they're going to do. But the average person uh, doesn't really know what's going on. Mm. And so I think creating stories about why the permanent fund is a good thing and how it benefits families and bringing people and their stories into the mix can help create a picture for the folks, conservative people, that this is a huge issue. Governors get elected or not get elected on this issue alone. People care about this issue. Um, and I would just put a little more effort in the marketing of it, so. Mm, yeah, yeah, well, we've got a, a little bit of a lean team on our side because we are the minority, but you're, you raise a good point. Um, the um, the min minority is, is the one that's really stuck up for the larger statutory PFD, or at least changing the law. If you want to change the law, just do it, but don't keep breaking law year after year. Well, I want to thank you and thank Scott Levesque for um, being our show producer. I know, Scott, you're out of state. You're doing a great job for us, no matter where you are. You just had to pop down to that really hot area down in uh, Washington. And I know that you're, um, you're doing some important things with your family. If you are a supporter of Must Read Alaska out there, thank you so much makes all this possible for us to keep standing up for what's right in Alaska. And if you'd like to support the conservative side of the news, we could really use the help. So don't uh, be shy. Hit the donate button there on the right side of mustreadalaska.com. And we'll stay strong, independent. We'll stay thoughtful. And against the big liberal news media, it's always trying to slant the news the other way. Until next time, we're signing off from somewhere in Alaska.